On January 31st, 2003, a small consortium of diplomats and officials representing France, Canada, El Salvador, and the United States met at an historic mansion owned by the Canadian government at Meech Lake in Gatineau, Quebec. Among their numbers were such notable names as Otto Reich, an American diplomat and lobbyist who was deeply involved in the Iran-Contra scandal, being dubbed the chief spinner for his role in disseminating propaganda. In January 2003, it had been a month since he had left his last job, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere. Also present was Luigi Ainaudi, the Assistant General Secretary for the Organization of American States, who would become Acting Secretary General in October 2004. They spoke with the likes of Pierre-André Wiltzer, a French politician who at the time was the Minister Delegate for Cooperation in Francophone Countries, which means that he managed the exploitative relationships that France maintains with its former colonies. The topic of discussion was a country 1,800 miles away, one which had no representative at Meech Lake. They were discussing the future of Haiti. An attendee would later say that they discussed the, quote, question of is the principle of sovereignty unassailable. A month and a year later, on February 29, 2004, they got their answer as U.S.-backed reactionary rebels surrounded the capital of Port-au-Prince, hundreds of Marines, along with French, Chilean, and Canadian soldiers, descended on the city and sided with the rebels against Jean-Bertrand Aristide, Haiti's democratically elected leader, who says that American soldiers forced him at gunpoint to resign and then put him on an American military plane to the Central African Republic. Aristide described it as a kidnapping. After this coup, the United States and its allies began Operation Secure Tomorrow, or the deployment of approximately 2,000 troops to aid in the occupation of Haiti, a role that would soon be taken over by the UN mission, which would retain essentially direct control of the country until 2017. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the historical relationship between Haiti and the United States. Obviously, there's quite a lot there, so for this episode in particular, I'm mainly going to cover the 1990s onward. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 126, Operation Secure Tomorrow. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. So, where to start? From 1957 to 1986, Haiti was ruled by the father-son duo of repressive dictators that was Francois and Jean-Claude Duvalier, affectionately known as Papa Doc and Baby Doc. The Duvaliers, especially Papa, who declared himself president for life in 1964, administered a vast and brutal system of organized state terror that saw the arbitrary execution of tens of thousands of political opponents and the judicious use of torture, which Papa Doc sometimes liked to be in the room for. In order to secure the allegiance of the United States, he began a campaign to execute every communist in Haiti. 
It worked, and Papadoc's murderous regime, where the secret police was twice as large as the army, continued unimpeded until his death in 1971, whereafter his son Jean-Claude assumed the throne. His rule was old wine in a new bottle. There were some very small relaxations on things like press restrictions, but he did nothing to change the fundamental construction of the regime, and the bloody repression continued. Baby Doc found great favor with Nixon and Reagan as he continued his father's habit of murdering communists, though not quite at the same level. Baby Doc was really more concerned in living a life of luxury than exercising his legislative duties, amassing a fortune of several hundred million dollars while Haiti became the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Eventually, the situation in Haiti became untenable, and in October 1985, a revolt began in the countryside, which quickly spread to a number of provinces. By January of 1986, Reagan, previously so steadfast an ally, was now pushing Jean-Claude to cede power and flee. They would even arrange a ride. That's eventually exactly what he did, and on February 7, 1986, Baby Doc fled Haiti on a U.S. Air Force plane bound for France. That's where he exits this story for now, but eventually he comes back to Haiti in 2011 after 25 years in exile, is promptly arrested and charged with corruption, pleads not guilty, and dies of a heart attack before the trial begins. But what happens after Baby Doc flees Haiti? Well, a general election was scheduled for November 29, 1987, but it was not smooth sailing until then. Dozens of candidates had to be removed due to their connections to and support of the Duvaliers, while over the course of campaign season, two candidates were assassinated. To say that tensions were high going into Election Day 1987, I think would be an understatement. Three hours after the polls opened that morning, a group of men from the National Intelligence Service, a Haitian secret police set up by the CIA, massacred a number of civilians. The death toll is not certain, but estimates range to between 30 and 300 people. In light of this incredible and immediate violence, the elections were cancelled and postponed until January 17, 1988. Elections which were boycotted by the majority of the parties, with estimated turnout at between 4 and 10 percent. The winner of this election was Leslie Manega, who was overthrown in a coup on June 20, 1988. The successor government was overthrown by another coup on September 18, 1988, which brought Prosper Avril, a former member of the Duvalier's elite presidential guard, to the presidency. Avril remained in power until 1990, where after the first true democratic election in Haiti since the 1800s was finally to be held. Leading in the polls was a former priest named Jean-Bertrand Aristide, he ran on a popular platform of deep reform and restructuring of Haitian society. Votes were collected in December of 1990 and January 1991, after which they were tallied and showed he had received 67% of the vote. 
before he was even sworn in. On January 6, 1991, a former member of Duvalier's secret police attempted to overthrow the embryonic administration. Masses of poor people from the slums, Aristide's base of support, surrounded the presidential palace and prevented the coup. On February 4th, Aristide assumed office and immediately ran into inflexible opposition from the capitalist class in the implementation of his reforms. Only seven months later, in September 1991, Aristide was overthrown by a far-right coup orchestrated by an army officer named Raoul Cedras. With forces funded and trained by the CIA consisting of former secret policemen, Duvalier hardliners, and death squad members, Cedras ousted the new president from office in two days, capturing him on September 29th. Venezuelan, American, and French diplomats negotiated for Aristide's life in exchange for his exile, and he departed for France. In his absence, Cedras ran a repressive military junta that hunted down and murdered Aristide supporters, as well as women's rights advocates and union members. This would spark a wave of hundreds of thousands of refugees, exacerbated by the fact that the post-coup sanctions brought upon the Cedras government made an already bad economic situation much worse. The military regime quickly became more corrupt and criminal than any of its predecessors save the Duvaliers, becoming heavily involved in drug smuggling, as well as siphoning off millions in public funds to a few Swiss bank accounts. Eventually, a number of factors compelled the Clinton administration to intervene, including a very vocal push from Haitian refugees and a campaign by Aristide himself. And so it was that on July 31, 1994, the United Nations authorized Security Council Resolution 940, which gave the go-ahead for a U.S.-led coalition to invade Haiti with the goal of returning the democratically elected Aristides to power. There were negotiations for a peaceful transfer of power between Cedras and Aristide, but they went nowhere. The military government thought that they would be immune from all real harm because they were tapped in with the CIA. It was a miscalculation, and on September 19, 1994, when he was made aware that thousands of soldiers were on their way, Cedras resigned within minutes. Aristide returned to Haiti in October 1994 and assumed the office of presidency on the 12th of that month. But it wasn't back to the old reformist platform that had gotten him elected. No, American military aid had come with a steep price. Aristide was forced to adopt stringent neoliberal policies and take on massive loans from the IMF that necessitated that he abolish essentially all tariffs and entirely open Haiti to free trade. The conditions of those same loans forbade the Haitian government from subsidizing any industry, essentially guaranteeing that Haiti would remain a total client state for American corporations. That is pretty much exactly what happened, and the flood of cheap American goods, especially rice, which I may add is beneficiary of many trade protections and subsidies in the U.S., completely eviscerated the Haitian economy, destroying any ability to manufacture goods for market and causing a total collapse of the agricultural sector, which made up the bulk of the Haitian economy. 
As neoliberalism sucked the blood out of Haiti, the American soldiers were exchanged for UN ones, part of the United Nations mission to Haiti that would last until 1996, eventually accounting for over 20,000 soldiers, or peacekeepers, on the island. Aristide's term ended in February 1996, where after he was succeeded by his friend René Préval, who won the election of 1995, serving a five-year term. Aristide ran another campaign in the election of 2000, which was partially boycotted by some opposition parties due to some perceived funny business in the vote counting for the parliamentary election. Aristide won the ensuing presidential election, which saw approximately 50% turnout, with a 92% share of the vote. I don't know what proportion of this is the opposition boycott, what part is the high organization of Aristide's Lavalas party, and what's from fudging the numbers, but I think it's safe to say that all three of these things had some degree of influence on the outcome. But there was a new president in the White House, and George Bush used the potentially dubious results of the Haitian election as an excuse to slap them with severe sanctions, which is quite ironic when you consider how Bush himself came to power. Regardless, Aristide assumed his second term as president amid tumultuous times. Not to mention the miserable economic situation, starting in 2001, far-right militias made up of former Death Squad members and aided by the CIA and French intelligence began operating out of the Dominican Republic, organizing cross-border raids and terrorist attacks. As if this military opposition wasn't enough, Europe and the United States froze all government-to-government -government aid and began heavily funding opposition candidates and attempting to organize new parties. Starting in his second term, Aristide began to push for France to pay $21 billion in reparations, equivalent to the amount of gold they had forced Haiti to pay after they won independence the total estimated price of all the Haitians who were formerly French slaves. This price was so great that Haiti began paying it in 1825 and did not finish until 1947. This eminently reasonable demand severely raised tensions with France, which refused any notion that it should be held accountable for its actions. In January 2003, Amid increasing tensions with Western powers, our politicians meet at Meech Lake to debate, oh, what was it? Ah, the question of, is the principle of sovereignty unassailable? As you well remember from the introduction, the West unsurprisingly decides that they can do whatever they want, and land troops in Port-au-Prince on February 29, 2004. American Special Forces units hold Aristide at gunpoint and tell him to relinquish power or there will be a bloodbath. Aristide resigns and is taken by the United States from Haiti directly to the Central African Republic, and would later relocate to South Africa. Aristide was in exile for seven years, returning to Haiti in 2011, but has not maintained political relevancy. After the 2004 coup, American soldiers from Operation Secure Tomorrow were switched out for those from the United Nations Stabilization Mission in Haiti, which would remain a large military force in the country until 2017. 
they frequently came into contact with the Haitian people, who came to see them as just another colonizer. Unsurprisingly, the UN did a great job of shipping weapons to Haiti and beefing up the militarization of its police, but it did absolutely nothing to address the underlying social issues that plagued Haitian society. The stabilization mission eventually ended on October 15, 2017, and was replaced by a smaller force, the United Nations Mission for Justice Support in Haiti, which was a fixture in the country until 2019. American imperial meddling in Haiti continues into the present day, best exemplified by the implication of multiple Americans with intelligence connections in the 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moise. Unfortunately, it seems that as long as countries like the United States and France have a say, Haiti will never truly be free. That is probably as good a place as any to stop for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and maybe learned a thing or two about the history of American imperialism in Haiti. If you did, then I would really appreciate it if you subscribed or shared the show with a friend. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.